in the worlds of Doctor Who on the 4th of April. We're going to talk about the big news of the weekend about the Doctor's new companion, talk to comics artist Rachel Stott, and once in future Doctor Who fan Paul Cornell about their work. And we're going to talk about our predictions for the 10th series of the new Doctor Who. All this on This Week in Time Travel. Hey, welcome to This Week in Time Travel. I'm Chip Sutterth, the former two-minute time lord. And I'm Alyssa Frankie of Whovian Feminism. And welcome to our new show on the Incomparable Network, taking a weekly look at the worlds of Doctor Who. We're a little late. That's my bad. I'm sorry. It's not your fault. It, you didn't ask to get a virus or whatever and start sounding like an ice warrior. Well, I do still have a little bit of that Sunday con husky voice thing going on. So I hope that adds to the podcast enjoyment today. Why this week in time travel? Well, because it's a great opportunity for people to make all these stupid jokes about, well, this is next week in time travel or this is last week in time travel. And, and, and to be fair, I've made some of those jokes myself. You've made half of them. That's not fair. <laughs> Just to give you all a bit of an idea of where we come from, uh, Alyssa, why Doctor Who? Why does Doctor Who matter so much to you that you would blog and do podcasts about it? You know, if I had an easy answer for what it is that I get absolutely obsessed with and fall into, my life would make a lot more sense. Uh, the honest thing is, I don't really know. I got into Doctor Who about six years ago now, and I was just really drawn to this show and its incredible story and its incredible potential that there's never sort of a defined limit on where it begins and ends. You have the TV show, you have comics, you have novels, you have extended adventures, and you have everything that fan community has created. And there's just so many stories to be told. It's one of those I started watching it and I just sort of felt my mind just burst and expand with all these imaginative possibilities. Uh, four years ago now, I started my blog, Whovian Feminism, and it was just one of the best fan spaces that I've fallen into. Uh, I was able to start having these really incredible conversations about this show that I loved and was welcomed. It was just an amazing experience for me. So this is really, for me, a continuation of my need to just obsessively go over every little detail of the show that has meant so much to me this past few years. I can relate. Um, I'm old enough to have remembered uh, Doctor Who airing on PBS back in the day and uh, sort of fell away from it and rediscovered it with the launch of the new show in 2005. It fell in with both feet. It, it, at the time, it felt familiar but better. Which I know is a controversial uh, opinion among some old school Doctor Who fans, but uh, I really got into it to the point that when I decided that some of my favorite podcasts weren't being sufficient 
sufficiently adulatory towards the new series. And I said, to, just to spite them, I was going to start my own podcast. So I did Two Minute Time Lord for a number of years, and that connected me to the Incomparable Network. And when we started getting the idea to do a new, longer form, more dialogue-rich uh, podcast, uh, Jason Snell at the Incomparable Network had invited us over, and uh, we're hoping for some great things on this podcast. I think definitely we are. I think the, the thing that both connects us together is, yes, we're both passionately involved in the show, but we also really just have this driving need for a little bit of spite to, to go in and defend the things that we love <laughs> and uh, really dig into the things that can bother us and really just passionately and unapologetically enjoy the show in the way that we want to do it. Um, so there's going to be, I think, sometimes that we are adulatory, sometimes where we're uh, more than a little bit irreverent, uh, and hopefully that will produce some amazing conversations. And we hope that you'll be around to uh, listen with us as we go on. This is going to be a much longer episode than usual for our first one out of the gate because uh, we had so much stuff queued up for last week and then Alyssa lost her voice. So let's uh, really quickly take a look at the news of the week and then we're going to talk about Series 10. So last week in time travel, we have uh, all kinds of news about the upcoming season, and it all begins with a four-letter word, and that four-letter word is Bill. Bill, Bill, Bill is gay, Bill is gay, Bill is a queer woman, and my heart is just going to absolutely burst with happiness and rainbows. I'm so excited. This news came out uh, in interviews with the news arm of the BBC, uh, Lizo Mazimba, I believe. And uh, it was, uh, we're going to find out in the second line of dialogue that uh, Bill is a queer woman of color. And we'll have more to say about that very, very shortly on this very podcast. I think the immediate thing to say is just, we are so excited. But yes, more conversation to come on that in just a minute. This series, aside from what we've seen in the trailer, we really don't know that much about it, do we? No, I think we've uh, had a very adventure-driven type of introduction to this. Um, there have been a lot of character trailers which have tried to introduce us to the character of Bill and reintroduce us to the character of the Doctor. But we don't really know a lot about what direction the story is going to take us this series. There isn't really an overarching plot that we are seeing at the moment. So we've gotten a lot of running down corridors, shooting at villains, Missy lurking and flirtatiously grinning at the screen in the corners. But uh, yeah, we don't really know what's coming our way. And I don't recall the last time I felt that way. I don't know if the long gap between Series 9 and Series 10 contributes to that. But yeah, I feel like I'm going in much colder than before. It also feels like they've shaken off some of the long-term plots and characters a little bit. Um, series 9 ended with Clara being sort of kind of forgotten, um, and the Doctor 
in, in essence, being sort of reintroduced, reborn. You know, he enters in his TARDIS uh, and it lights up for the first time and he gets a new sonic screwdriver and he, he's set on a new path. And the Christmas specials have sort of um, started cutting those ties. Um, we had what appeared to be a final goodbye to River Song. And we never really know. We've had final goodbyes with River Song before, um, but it does seem to be setting itself up to be uh, its own independent season. Good thought. Good thought. So while we're talking about the 10th series of Doctor Who, we're also talking about the 11th series and who's going to be cast, that perennial conversation. And some interesting things happened in the betting markets for who the next Doctor is going to be, because of course there is a betting market for who the next Doctor is going to be. For at least a while uh, in the last week, the odds that Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the star of Fleabag, would be the 13th Doctor really seemed to spike. You know, I take all of this with a massive grain of salt um, because we've seen a couple of spikes in the betting market for one person or another, um, and it's not terribly accurate. But it does bring up some interesting actors that we may not have thought of before. Uh, I've watched a few episodes of Fleabag, and I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and I wasn't terribly thinking about her for the 13th Doctor, but, you know, I'm I'm definitely thinking about her now. Um, and her character in Fleabag uh, is... A very interesting doctorish type of character. Um, she's very confident in her own. She's very confident in a doctorish type of way, which is lots of bluster, lots of walking in like you own the place and you know everything that you're doing, but sort of um, deeply uncomfortable uh, and also unsure. And she's plays a kind of caustic personality. She's a very deliberately unlikable type of character. She does uh, a lot of questionable, morally interesting things in this show. But she's complex. She's layered. Um, she's done joy and adventure and deep grief and discomfort very well. Uh, so I'd definitely be interested in uh, seeing her as the 13th Doctor, but uh, I don't know about the timing on yeah, that. Yeah, she's, she's doing the Han Solo movie. She's going to be doing another series of Fleabag. It just, it strikes me as kind of unlikely, but isn't it nice to, however briefly, have a woman be the odds-on favorite to be the next Doctor? You know what? It really is a relief to to see that happening because once some of the, some of the guys were the odds-on favorite in the betting market, the narrative became: see, you know, nobody thinks the next Doctor could even potentially be a woman. Not possible. Not happening. So it's nice to be able to push back on that narrative a little bit. Hmm. And of course, one of the inevitable April Fool's gags by one of the Doctor Who news sites was that the next Doctor was certainly going to be a degeneration into David Tennant. <laughs> Man, the BBC wishes it could do that. <laughs> so what we've got uh, happening uh, in this last weekend was WonderCon in Anaheim. And this brand new BBC series, this brand new Doctor Who spinoff was just revealed to the United States of America. It's this show that you've never heard of before called Class. 
which has, of course, been out since October in yes. the UK and Canada yes. uh, and has fallen off a truck once or twice uh, to get into the hands of uh, a few American viewers. So it's just a tad bit anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah. I'll be I'll be really fascinated to see what happens with class. Uh, many of you listening to this podcast, whether you're in the UK or Canada or the US or whatever, have already seen class through means legitimate or illegitimate. I haven't yet. I just I haven't taken the time and I was going to just wait and watch it with concurrent with BBC America. So we will talk about class after its run ends in the US, but I'll be fascinated that it was an experiment in digital delivery of storytelling for the BBC and uh, between the online and the weird, weird airing schedule on BBC One when um, it went off of digital and went on to the television. The ratings were not good. It just did not seem to be a success over there. I'll be fascinated to see if it turns into a breakaway hit or something here in the U.S. It'll also tell us how many people actually wait for it to come out in legitimate sources. I think one of the problems it's been plagued by is that its choppy delivery has really hampered the growth of a dedicated fan base because fan bases are international now. And um, that's especially true of Doctor Who. I know a lot of people on Tumblr and Twitter were trying to be careful about spoilers and trying to protect people who couldn't watch it legitimately. Um, And then also sometimes forgetting to be careful about spoilers and people who weren't able to watch it legitimately uh, got spoiled for things. And that drove people to view it through illegitimate ways, uh, because that's the only way that they're going to be able to see it and enjoy it without being spoiled for everything that's going to happen next. Because it's really hard to be able to limit those fandom spaces. And I worry about whether or not we're going to learn the right lessons from classes rating and uh, how it performs, especially in the U.S. I, you know, I think uh, fandom's development has really been stilted by this weird delivery of it goes out super early in the U.K. and Canada and comes out super late in the U.S., um, choppy delivery in the U.K., um, and then fans being driven to see it through illegitimate means just so they can enjoy it as it was meant to be viewed without having the whole thing um, spelled out for them accidentally when they just were on the internet at the wrong time of the day. I think it's probably going to end up not doing very well. And that makes me kind of sad because the lesson that should be learned is you can't divide up fandoms internationally anymore. And you can't pretend that you can keep a show confined to one country or another. And I don't think this was done because of uh, licensing reasons. I think this was done because people thought it would do better in the US if they withheld it until the new season of Doctor Who came out. And I don't think that thesis is going to be proven. We will check in. We will check in. It was a co-production with BBC America. So I'm sure that they did what they thought they needed to do to maximize their return on the investment, but we'll just have to see. Anyway, we will check in on class at the end of its run here in the U.S., Finally, the interviews in today's episode of This Week in Time Travel were taken at Gallifrey One, which is by far the greatest fan-run Doctor Who convention in the world. Tickets for the 2018 edition of Gallifrey One go on sale this Saturday, April 8th, 
everybody panic. Oh my God. Every time they post a new update in their Facebook, I've just like panic. I'm just like, did I miss the day? I have it on my calendar, but maybe I wrote it down wrong. Like, am I not going to be able to take it? Is this not going to be able to happen? Oh my God. Here's the thing. If you have never been to Gallifrey One before or have never tried to attend Gallifrey One before, this is a fan-run convention at the Los Angeles Airport Marriott. It is not a Wizard World Con. It is not WonderCon. It is a fan-run convention, and it, there's only so big that it can get. So this convention typically sells out in a day. It just requires careful planning. You have to be online when tickets start to go on sale. You have to have your day sort of blocked out around it. And you have to be patient. Uh, You have to not panic too early. You have to make sure you're on the page at the right moment. Um, So if everyone takes a couple of deep, calming breaths, we can all make it through this and we can all get tickets. Yeah, the tickets will be on sale at noon Pacific Daylight Time on Saturday, April 8th. And I would consider it a great personal favor if you would wait until I've logged in. <laughs> Cheater. What? 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 And that's the news for This Week in Time Travel. Next up, let's take a look at Series 10. Well, for the first episode out of the gate, it makes sense to talk about the series of Doctor Who that's about to start up in just a couple of weeks. One of my favorite podcasts about Doctor Who back in the day was the old The Doctor Who podcast. That's self that that they really took advantage of SEO there, let me tell you. That was one of the most popular Doctor Who podcasts out there. And one of the things I liked about it so much was it had a rotating cast of hosts. So Alyssa and I uh, wanted to introduce you to some of the folks that we hope will be joining us on as regular a basis as possible. And first up is Rachel Donner. Hey Rachel. Hello. Rachel, if you are a regular on the Incomparable Network and if you are musical theater inclined, you may have heard Rachel as a regular panelist on Pod for Ham, which was all about the musical Hamilton, an American musical. Well, it was an American musical podcast. And Rachel is also the co-host of Hockey Feels. What is Hockey Feels, Rachel? Uh, it's where I pour out my emotions about the ups and downs of my favorite hockey team with my co-host, Stephen Chapansky. And your co-host is riding high in the hockey standings with his team, and you are not. That is correct. I'm very sorry. So uh, our other recurring co-host, if we don't run him off, I did mention the Doctor Who podcast I would like to bid a wonderful welcome back to Doctor Who podcasting to this gentleman who, because he's a blues man, he gets some play on music. (laughs) This is the music of Tom Atta and the Bad Man Clan. Tom Atta from the Doctor Who podcast. Welcome back to Doctor Who podcasting. Thank you very much. It's slightly disconcerting to hear myself, my band, pouring down the internet across the Atlantic. <laughs> That's wonderful. You sound that great. is great. 
You sound great. I I didn't even know that you were a blues man back when you were doing most of the stuff on the DWP. And since then, um, Tom, tell me tell me about this band. Tell me about what you do. Okay, fine. Okay, so I play blues music. I play blues guitars and I sing. The reason I sound like uh, Barry White's slightly more uh, effeminate cousin this morning is that I've been I was out singing and playing last night. Um, so yeah, that, that's it. so that, that that's really it. Um, I, I would I would sit and talk with Trev and James about Doctor Who, and then I would go out and I would and I still do and I'd, I'd uh, go out and play blues around the UK and Europe and I think around Russia um, in the next couple of weeks as well. <laughs> um, I, I, I have actually played in America. I played in uh, Memphis. Very briefly, but yeah, that, that, but that, but that's me. Um, I'm a blues man, Doctor Who fan, and academic. That's what I do. <laughs> it's so great to have you back in uh, podcasting. Um, it's nice to be here. I've got to say. <laughs> so we wanted to give ourselves a little bit of a hype up preview for series ten, which is starting sort of alarmingly soon. We've been without Doctor Who for so long that I don't even know if I'm really prepared to have a new season dropping on my lap yet. Uh, wilderness course, year. Of- wilderness year. Yeah. Oh, God. How did everyone make it through the wilderness years, plural? Like, this has been long enough. Uh, But one of the things that broke uh, just uh, before we started recording, Bill Potts, the new companion, uh, is going to be a lesbian woman. And I think you saw every single queer fan's heart just absolutely weep with joy when that news came out on Friday. Um, So I wanted to talk about sort of what are the things that we are hoping for and what we're excited for with Series 10? Because uh, personally, that's been the most hopeful, wonderful news that I have heard uh, low these many wilderness months. Well, okay, when, when you say that's the most hopeful thing, I mean, why, 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 what, what's, what's excited you about that? I mean, I think there's some obvious things about it, but just to be specific, what, what's, what excites you about uh, this news about Bill? Um, well, Personally, uh, I'm a queer woman, um, and the past, well, many, many years has been a bit dodgy for uh, representation um, of bisexual and lesbian women. Um, And I think, for me, I've had my hopes brought up so high by a lot of TV shows in the past um, that have really just been laid low. Uh, The 100 was a show that I was following for quite a while, had uh, two uh, women lead characters, a lesbian woman and a bisexual woman. Um, And then they went into the kill your gays trope um, and ended that relationship quite horribly. Mm. Um, And Doctor Who itself has sort of towed around this representation. Um, You've had uh, Jenny and Vastra, obviously, but they are sort Mm. of recurring characters, but they don't really come out too often. Um, You had (laughs) confirmation. an interesting choice of words. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I thought about that and I thought, oh, interesting that I said that. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you had Husbands of River Song um, mm. confirmation that River was a bi woman, that she mentioned that she'd had multiple wives. She's flirting with another woman in the show. Um, and 
in series nine, they sort of towed around the idea of whether or not Clara was bi or not. There was a couple of like hints that maybe it was happening, but not outright saying anything. Um, and I've just really wanted that kind of representation in that character to really be at the forefront of this show for a while. Um, the fact that it's uh, a woman like me who's going to love uh, other women, be in relationships with them, like... I'm I'm sort of an eternal optimist. I've also had a really awful past couple of years, and I've, I'm I'm maybe it's naive, but I'm clinging to the hope that Bill is going to be a character that I'm going to love and find myself represented by. That's interesting. I mean, because I, I think um, Pearl was was saying that she um, didn't represent all, all black people or all gay people, but mm-hmm. that she wanted to play the, the character truthfully. And again, it's I, th- I think you know maybe one of the things is with Doctor Who fans, you, you've got this show which calls to um, all of the people. Well, I think anyway, calls to all of the people. It calls to uh, maybe those who feel a bit a little bit left out or marginalised. Um, and, and and says, well, look here, you know, here is a very broad church, perhaps. Um, and it's always interesting to see how fandom reacts to this. Um, I'm surprised that Captain Jack isn't getting quite a quite a uh, as, as more, uh, more, you know, a bit more coverage inside this because he was kind of omnisexual, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think. I, you know, it's it's one of those weird things that from a PR perspective, I can understand why they said Bill was the first gay companion. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. technically, if, depending on how you define con- companion, Jack would more likely qualify for that. But pu- from like a public perception, most people tend to associate like the companion as being the woman who travels with the doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, – Jack's a really interesting kind of character. I think that, um, you know, there were parts of that representation that I liked, but there was also very much that, uh, and and I speak a little bit selfishly, I guess, that I really wanted to see uh, more women, more queer women represented on screen. And, and, you know, I know Pearl's not trying to represent every single woman, every single lesbian woman, every single queer woman, every single black woman, but when you're in a marginalized group that has so little representation, it's really hard not to just grab every single character that you've got and just hold on and just go, all right, I, you know, I, I want to be happy with, with this. And there, there's some responsibility both from my side as a fan to not put too much expectations on her. And also hopefully the creators are very aware of the responsibility of, you know, putting uh, a character, uh, that represents a lot of marginalized communities on screen. Yeah, I think that's where I am right now is I'm, as also a queer woman, I I, I heard the news and I got a knot in the pit of my stomach. I, I it's, it's fear that they're gonna mess it up because yeah. so many TV shows has have messed it up over the years that to have my favorite show tackle this in a more direct way and don't get me wrong Vastra and Jenny I think have been phenomenal I think they've been well written they haven't been there um what I I say you know titillation versus representation and I think there's been a lot of titillation side of things on this show with the whole Jane Austen thing for Clara and with River I think that was all of that was titillation and not representation and so to have the 
primary companion be a gay character scares the living crap out of me. And I just hope that they do her justice and do the character justice. Um, and I'm, and I'm really hoping, um, it's a thing in lowercase letters and not a thing in capital letters that it's, it's part of who she is and it presents itself in organic ways, but not in shoehorned, messagey movie of the week ways. Yeah, I was thinking that um, I was, uh, one of the things that gives me hope is that this is a main character. It's not a um, it's not a recurring character or a guest shot, uh, but Bill has to be a fully fleshed out character to succeed. And I suspect that the showrunner knows that. So, you know, I I. I think that there's tremendous incentive and pressure and probably desire on his part to get it right, especially this time, because uh, in, in its way, Bill is an even more high profile uh, companion as a companion than even Captain Jack was in uh, seri- in series one. Uh, Captain Jack became bigger because of Torchwood and stuff like that. But Bill's a flagship character. Stephen Moffat's got to get her right. And I'm 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 hopeful I'm hopeful for that reason. I'm also hopeful that, you know, from what I have seen of recent seasons, it seems like he is more aware of the criticisms and the issues that have been brought up. And um, maybe this is me being overly optimistic, but he does seem to be more aware that there have been criticisms about uh, his representation of queer women. He does seem to be more aware of um, some of the criticisms that have been made for plots for women in his shows. And what I saw in season nine and Husbands of River Song makes me think he does want to get it right. And I may be just putting so much of my hope in this that because I, I need it to work. I want it to work because it's something that's so important to me. Um, but you know, I, I'm internally optimistic. I'm hoping that he can. So I want to move to discussing, um, sort of some of the other things that we are expecting to see, um, in series 10 before the announcement about Bill happened. Uh, we got some hints that some, uh, favorite recurring villains, uh, were going to be coming back. We of course have talked about Missy's going to be coming back. I love Michelle Gomez. I'm very excited about that. Um, but we're also going to be getting some classic Mondasian Cybermen coming back and new ice warriors. This to me is just sounding really fun. Like we're really going to play with some classic villains. Uh, How do you guys feel about those villains coming back? Are you excited? Are you nervous? You know, I I do definitely want to talk about the villains, but I'm wondering if the the, the track or the, the, the trajectory of the conversation isn't as as we're doing it isn't kind of indicative of one of the problems I've I've felt over the last year or so, which is the most exciting thing about this is that there's a chance the Doctor might come back. In as much as rather than watching episodes of Clara Who, sorry people, um, um, or, or or watching a show which is there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the show with the show being character driven. That's great, it's fantastic, but it's about the Doctor. So I, I'm rather hoping that in his last season. All of these things become relative to the character of the Doctor. 
brilliant that uh, Bill has um, a more rounded personality. Um, that's fantastic. Although I'm not sure to what extent the sexuality of characters has ever played a huge amount, uh, a huge part in the show. It, it it should do because it's now more character driven. But <clears throat> I would really just like to see the Doctor come back. I'd like to see the Doctor as the central feature in the show. Um, I'd, and I'm looking, and I'm hoping that for um, his last season. Um, Peter Capaldi does that. And maybe to put that into context, one of the things he always said was he'd like to work with the Mondasian Cybermen. Um, and so to see them coming back is cool. Um, I, I guess we'll see, we'll see the return of the Weeping Angels. I guess we'll see the return of um, the Ice Warriors too, which is fabulous. Um, but I'd like, to see, I'd like to see them all come back with a focus on the Doctor and maybe looking forward. One of the challenges I guess you've got with uh, a show that's uh, in excess of 50 years old is that it there's there's a temptation for it to uh, rest on its laurels, but I guess you know most fans, new fans, old fans want to be excited and want to be intrigued, and so I'm not sure to what extent it's a great idea to bring back lots and lots and lots of old characters. Although that said, I'm a, I'm an old Doctor Who fan. I'm glad to see the Cybermen coming back, but I I would much rather see the Doctor emerging now because you know I think about this and I think oh okay, as I think about Peter Capaldi. What exactly is it that he is going to be known for? It's a terrible, da- I, you know. It's, it, it must be a very hard job for an actor because as soon as you've got it, as soon as you start, people ask when you're going to leave. And now we know he's leaving. I look at it. Yeah. You know, we, we, look, we look back at the last bit and I think, okay, so there were elements for each, you know, each of the previous doctors is kind of not not reductible, but there are things about their characterizations which stick out. I wonder what that's going to be for Peter Capaldi because at the moment. It's very much about him and how much he loved Clara. Cool, that's fantastic. Um, but I just want, I, I really want him to start burning. I want him to blaze. I want him to be magnificent and incandescent. And I'm not sure um, that the stories have given him that space. He's taken that space, which is a hugely important thing for him. But I'm not sure the stories have given him that. So, I'd, you know, great the characters are coming, uh, great the, the monsters are coming back. But I want to see the Doctor come back. I want to see the Doctor actually emerge properly now. I'm I'm really excited about this season. I've been thinking a lot about the first season of the new series with Nine and Rose and you know being nostalgic about it a lot. And one of the things I loved about that season is that you got to relearn about the doctor and reacquaint yourself with the doctor through the eyes of somebody who was clearly strong and bright but a little bit naive and a little bit in a bubble that she needed to break out of. And from the way that they've been portraying Bill, I think there's a lot of similarity there. So I'm looking forward to having the doctor go on this myriad of adventures. We'll get to see all those monsters, uh, some of which will be returning and some of which will be new. So there'll be a little bit of familiarity with the new and just have these so many different varied adventures with some involving the time travel into the past or the future and other planets. And I think that is everything that I loved about that first season of New Who. And I feel like it's coming back and we have this clean slate to start with. And Peter Capaldi's doctor is going to go out with a bang on these adventures and, and hopefully not so much on a longer story arc per se. Or if the story arc is there, it's going to be subtle, like it Agreed. was in that first do you want to make, Guys, can we play some games? Oh, do, do you want to make some predictions for what we're going to see? <laughs> I've got <laughs> a prediction right out the gate. 
and cool. it's 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 a grumpy prediction. Uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of uh, not about the storyline, but about what we're going to see. Stephen Moffat had a recent interview in which um, he's talking about his last year coming up on Doctor Who, and he had things to say about the budget that he was working with. And I'm I'm just I'm I'm just mildly afraid that Doctor Who is going to continue to look a little more like a show that's barely able to make happen what it's been trying to make happen for so many years. The the last Christmas special where they had to uh, have a hand wavy explanation for why one of the offices uh, in Japan was it devoid of people. Um, you, we set I set up a Pokemon Go trap outside and everybody left. Um, that's a that's one way to avoid uh, paying for extras. I'm mildly expecting that they're going to find some new and creative ways not to spend a whole lot of money, and it's not always going to look like they managed to pull it off. Doctor Who was so expansive, and they looked like they were spending a lot more money than they did back when um, RTD started and BBC budgets were a little more flushed and they didn't have to spend on rendering things in high definition. But I know that part of the ethos of being a classic Doctor Who fan is to use your imagination to uh, get past the limitations of the budget. That was never my strong point. And I have a feeling I'm going to need to use my imagination a little bit more than um, I typically care to next this season. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Although that said, I've been comfort watching season 16 and 17 and uh, you know when you consider that star wars was happening at the same time as all of that stuff going on um but i, but I do i do i do take you i do take your point you know there's a sense of say of, of there's a certain type of approach which says show don't tell you need to show quite well but doctor who fans you know, we, we, we do have a lot of imagination. Well, I know, okay. and, and my friend my friend Eric Stadnick from Doctor Who The Writer's Room is fond of saying that if you're the sort of Doctor Who fan who can't handle a story because of bad special effects, then you don't deserve a good story. <laughs> I will take that point. <laughs> That's so, Eric. What particularly interests me is that we have the Master returning and uh, the Mondasian Cybermen returning because the Master-Doctor dynamic has been ongoing since early days of the show um, and one of the uh, most lasting villain hero relationships. Um, and the Mondasian Cybermen, it's not just like we're bringing a classic Cybermen back. We're bringing back the villain from William Hartnell's last story in Doctor Who to yeah. face off against Peter Capaldi. And Peter Capaldi, for all that people make comparisons to him with the third Doctor, really seems to be leaning more into um, his similarities with the first Doctor. You know, he entered that special broadcast announcing him as the new doctor uh, with his hands on his lapels like uh, William Hartnell used to do. And going out, I mean, this is obviously not his final story. There'll be the Christmas story afterwards, but it it will feel like, I think, his final story. I I think that we're going to see them playing a lot with the similarities with the first doctor and playing a lot with that um, storyline of what happens when a doctor departs. It's interesting because the Mondasian Cyberman episode is one where uh, William Hartnell was very ill and not there for a lot of it. Um, so be curious to see how they sort of bring the doctor back into that. Yeah, there's there's um, a shot of uh, a picture of Susan being on his desk while he talks to Bill in episode one. Yeah. So that could be that could be interesting. But I'm interrupting. I'm interrupting. Right, come on, guys. Predictions. Predictions. <laughs> what, what, what are we going to see? Rachel, your turn. Well, I think one thing that we haven't mentioned yet, which kind of makes me happy, oh, yeah. is Nardal. <laughs> and um, 
because oh. I don't like him at all. What's wrong with Nardole? Come on, he's I'm great. He's hoping, comedy. He's funny. He's bald. <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the here's the thing that I think is going to happen Ooh. for me as a viewer is that I've hated him in Don't his appearances now. so far and was ang- was angry that he was made a series regular and I think the show is going to surprise me and make and he's going okay. to I'm going to say something that sounds a little mean. Um I'm not a huge Nardle fan either, but I do like Matt Lucas, so I've sort of I've sort of been but yeah, it, exactly. it's the same way I feel that exactly. like I'm not a big fan of the Sixth Doctor, but Colin Baker is charming that like I sort of that sort of gets me into like okay, fine, I'll, you know, I'll I'll watch this. Like I I it, I it feels mean i'm not really a fan of the character that they've created but matt lucas is so charming and fun and nice just maybe maybe i'll hang on yeah i and i think he's somebody that makes the best of what he's given and even if the writing isn't 100 percent there for the character he'll make the best of it and i was surprised how much i liked him in the christmas special although i still don't have a good handle on the character as far as is he uh is he a savant is he mostly dim with flashes of brilliance as he, you know, I, I couldn't get a handle on whether I was supposed to be impressed with him or if he was just comedy relief or it's sort of whipped back and forth, which, so I'm looking forward to seeing what that, what that character will be like. And I'm also kind of looking forward to seeing what kind of character the doctor will have. Um, yeah. Tom, you, you, you've, you've been sort of eager for the doctor to become the doctor again, as you put it. I kind of always felt like he was the doctor, but I I still don't have a good handle on his personality. I thought he had a more defined personality in series eight, and I guess eccentric would be the word for series nine. I'm I'm the sort of person who wants a knowable doctor, and I'm not sure that I I thought I know, knew him better in series eight than this season, and I'm not sure what we're going to get next season. Do you know, I think this is something that, well, yeah, I get conversations off camera and the rest of it, or off microphone. But I think what we've got here is like, we, there's a there's there's a move generally towards instant gratification. I think um, certainly in terms of TV and mu- in terms of TV and in terms of uh, commercial music, popular music, um, acts and shows don't have as much time as they used to have to make to be a hit. So, for instance, with with something like the Doctor, with a character like the Doctor, um, writers it seemed to me anyway seem to have a slightly longer time to get a sense of what is the actor doing with this. Um, and it, okay, whilst we could argue, oh yeah, but you know, the, uh, Hartnell and Trout only had three years and so did Davison. Yeah, they did, but the seasons were way longer. Um, and so there's a, 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 a chance for writers and the production teams to see what the actor was doing and then to mould the, the, the story and the character around them. I don't think Peter Capaldi's had that at all. Um, although that said, he's been incredibly strong. So hopefully the writers have kind of run to meet him halfway and we'll get scripts which play to Peter's strengths and Peter's strengths become far more, um, not, not more obvious, but they're, they're, they're more front and centre in terms of the way the Doctor is presented. Because it would be a shame for an actor of that power, because he is a powerful actor, um, to leave the show having not um, 
having not stamped his authority on it. He's been very, very good in the in the spaces that have opened up for him, or probably more accurate in the spaces he's opened up for himself. Um, but I'm just hoping that the writers have, have caught up with him, so we can so, you know, so we get the characterization from both sides. And I think that they've done an excellent job with the writing lineup for this season. And you look at the some of the returning writers that have written. Uh, mostly strong episodes, I would say. And I'm especially looking forward to Sarah Dollard's episode, uh, which is a historical, but it's also seems to be based on what we've you know, seen in the trailers so far that it has one of the monsters that we would see in our everyday lives in terms of you know, what's hiding underneath the frozen surface of a lake or a river. And so the combination of the historical you know, going into the past aspect and, you know, fear of something in the real world always lends itself to a great Doctor Who adventure. And so looking at, at that sort of episode, seeing that uh, Jamie Matheson is back again, uh, seeing that Peter and Harness Rona is Monroe, back again. And Rona Monroe, we haven't mentioned. Uh, yes. And Rona Monroe, <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm so excited to see what she can do with this new series and this new kind of structure and given an opportunity with much more tools than she had in the classic series. I mean, this is a pretty exciting series from the variety of writers that we have. So I think we'll just see some really strong episodes through and through. Okay, so I don't really read the forums as much as I should do because <laughs> it's a horrible place to go sometimes. Um, <laughs> um, so, all right, I'm going to call it, I reckon... Everything that looks like Earth in the in the trailers is actually on Mondas. There you go. There's my prediction. Oh, <laughs> I like that one, mate. Come on, let's play. Come on, hey, look, come on, let's play. Um, so yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm saying okay. So I suspect someone might have already said this somewhere in a forum, but I haven't seen it. If they have, everything that looks like Earth on the trailers is actually Mondas, which is where Bill's from. Hooray! All right, oh. I'll, I'll I'll see your rampant speculation and I'll raise it. <laughs> The doctor never left the confession dial. We're still in there. Ooh, oh, that's that's very Bobby. That's very Pam Ewing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one: Dal Daleks to actually be a credible threat at some point. Oh, now you're just—that's just nuts. <laughs> well, I can throw in—I can throw in the trolliest of all speculation. Go, go, go. I think Susan's coming back this season. I don't think she's any of the characters we've seen on screen, but she was in that little like first snippet of the first episode where he's got a picture of her on his desk, and they are really leaning into the William Hartnell comparisons. I think they're going to bring her back, if only for a brief moment, and that would make me happy. Well, some friends of ours have uh, said, have noted that you know Barry Letts gave. John Pertwee pretty much everything he wanted in his last serial. Um, maybe you mean every vehicle he ever wanted. Well, that too. Um, <laughs> I wonder if uh, you know Stephen Moffat's giving Peter Capaldi the Mondasian Cybermen. Capaldi has said things a lot, sort of in character um, interviews with kids and things like that about his granddaughter. Um, you know, it's. That may be a trolling response. Listen, I've come to expect nothing less from you, but yeah, I think you're on to something. See, this is why we work well together. I give a trolley response and then you enable me. 
Thank you guys so much for joining us for rampant speculation. And hopefully we've given each other enough winding up that in a few weeks time, maybe one or two of us come out triumphant. (laughs) Probably not me. (laughs) We're going to be the way things go. And uh, Rachel and Tom, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to you being a part of future episodes of This Week in Time Travel. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes, thanks. Looking forward to it. Hey, This Week in Time Travel is on The Incomparable Network, which is all about pop culture in so many different forms. If you're interested in more to life than Doctor Who, maybe check out this stuff. The Incomparable crew looks at novelist N.K. Jemisin and her most recent books, The Fifth Season and The Obelisk Gate. That's on the Mothership podcast, The Incomparable. And Chip and other assorted victims will try to define words that shouldn't exist but do in a game called Low Definition on The Incomparable Game Show. The team reviews the latest episodes of Arrow and The Flash on the TV podcast. Go to theincomparable.com for these and other great podcasts. Well, for our first pro interview on This Week in Time Travel, we couldn't be more proud to be talking to Rachel Stott, who is a comic artist at Titan, responsible for my favorite uh, rendition of the 12th Doctor that isn't, you know, something that happens in real life on a soundstage. She won Best Newcomer Artist in the British Comic Awards in 2015. She's drawn Planet of the Apes, Star Trek, Doctor Who, Ghostbusters, and some combinations of all of those thereof and some sorts of crossover stuff. Well, when Alyssa had talked to her, Rachel had just come off of her first experience at Gallifrey One, the world's greatest fan-run Doctor Who convention. So I know this was your first year at Gallifrey One. Uh, How did you come to be at Galley, and uh, did you have fun? Uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was so, so good. Uh, I think I was there because Paul Cornell suggested me to Sean, mm-hmm. um, the gentleman that organizes it. So thank you, Paul, <laughs> if you're listening to this. And uh, yeah, I just had the best time. It was really funny, though, because I think I um, I was so excited to go. I pretty much signed up to every panel that I could possibly do. And I ended up on one about like cosplay, which I've never actually done. <laughs> interesting and then um my the woman looking after me ruth ann she said that i had the longest to-do list of any guest that they had to make the font smaller to fit it onto the piece of paper which i thought was funny so yeah made the most of it i know before you began professionally working in comics that you yourself have been and are just a big fan that you love getting involved in fan activities and uh fan art um and that you were actually drawing fan art before you began professionally drawing comics. How did you break through to start professionally being a comic book illustrator? Comics has always been like my main interest. So mm-hmm. uh, I would always do like my own little fan comics and stuff. Because it's something I, I like to think about still now. Like, you know, sometimes you see a comic and you're like, oh, I'd love to have a go on that. I'd love to draw that. And it's just that that mentality of like, well, I, I could if I wanted. I could just draw that if I wanted, <laughs> you know. If all of a sudden, I'm trying to think of it, like if I was like, oh, my God, I want to draw Batman, then I could just go tomorrow and be like, okay, I guess I'll go draw some Batman, which I think is like, it's one of the nice things about comics is that it's so accessible. Like anyone with sort of a, a piece of paper and a pen can go and draw their own. And it doesn't require any like investment of capital, like wanting to be a filmmaker would be or anything like that. So 
I think it's wonderful in that way. But uh, but yeah, I used to do like fan art and things like that. And uh, it's a really good way to get yourself like noticed by publishers and stuff because, you know, they're on the lookout for things like that. So uh, it was Titan who published a Doctor Who comics. Um, I'm sort of very vocal on Twitter about my fanishness and for their sins, they came across some of it and, uh, yeah, approached me to draw some of the comics. So it happened really, really nicely for me. I think one of the things that always just sort of continuously amazes me is you started off drawing fan art, you became a professional illustrator, and then Peter Capaldi sent you his own fan art as a thank you for all of the art that you have been drawing. How has it been to make that transition to being a fan and a professional creator of this show? Has it been a little bit weird going back and interacting in fan communities or just is the wonderfulness of having Peter Capaldi send you fan art just make it absolutely incredible? Oh, it's just been, it's like really, really incredibly weird and surreal, but amazing at the same time. It's like literal kid in a candy shop type situation. <laughs> like sometimes it's hard to maintain a level of professionalism when sort of, like I remember when I got hired on the Doctor Who books and they were sending me all the stuff to do with Capaldi's second season, like his costume and all this plot stuff. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, squee. And then I'd have to send the email back and be like, thank you for the information. This will be very useful to the work. <laughs> and then just like trying to maintain a level of composure. So, which is a bit like what Galley was like, because it's really, you sort of there as a guest and to talk about your work, but at the same time you're going like, oh my God, there's a canine and oh my God. <laughs> and, but yeah, so it's amazing. It's like, it's sort of a dream job situation. And it like, I don't think anyone would judge me for being too, uh, fanish because I was talking to someone at the, I think it was Nick Abad since I was talking to about it I was like I think everyone that works in any respect on Doctor Who um you can't really accidentally especially the comics you can't really accidentally fall into it you can't be sort of like oh I haven't really watched the show but I guess I'll draw a Doctor Who comic I get you, you kind of have to come to it as a fan so the nice thing about Galley was that you you know I was meeting up with all the other people that work on the comics and stuff. And whenever you do, you all get on because you're all into Doctor Who and you're all sort of similar type of people and things like this. So that's a really unique thing about working on that franchise. Uh, one of your pieces of art that I have loved the most is the punk doctor. Uh, and <laughs> in the is her favorite. <laughs> it's really, really wonderful. Um, I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about reading the most recent 12th Doctor comics is that the punk doctor has now in a way sort of become canon as the time surgeon, the sort of in-universe comic book adaptation of the 12th Doctor, who's very punk doctor-ish. Uh, how did that come about? How did you manage to uh, bring that into the comics? Like the writer, Robbie Morrison, we get on so well. Like um, I've met him a few times at cons and he's just the, the nicest, like funniest, like he's, and you could tell he has a real passion for the show and stuff. And um, whenever we meet up, we talk about things we're both into and stuff. But I, I think that he probably sees more of my tweets than I keep stay conscious of. Because, <laughs> you know, anyone that follows me on Twitter is probably a bit sick of me because I'm just like tweeting every 10 seconds about like, oh, the oxygen I just breathed 10 seconds ago was really great, guys. Oh, my God. Um <laughs> Like, you know, constant stream of information coming out. And every now and again, he'll put something in the script that will make me go, oh, my God, he saw me talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I can't think of a good example. But, um, 
like uh, I tweeted a bunch uh, about how much I love Asterix comic books and things like this. And mm-hmm. then a few weeks, oh, that was it. And so a few weeks later, there was a bit in the script. And I, I think it didn't end up making the comic, but uh, Clara's like tapping herself on the head and going like, these aliens are crazy. Um, and I was like, oh my God, it's like the Asterix thing. And, uh, and Robbie puts in little treats like that for me, which is really nice. And yeah, so basically I think Robbie had just seen my punk doctor and was like, Oh, he's very indulgent of me. And he's like, fine, we'll put it in. He was probably like that or something about it. But yeah, I'm very grateful to him because it's, it, I was kind of joking about it. But at the same time, you're like, it is kind of canon now. Like, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. You've also had a few arcs so far where you have been playing with the medium of comics itself. In um, issue 2.5, you had the story uh, where the boneless are kidnapping people through comics. And in the most recent issues that have been coming out, the doctor has met the comic book writer and illustrator who are creating the time surgeon, which is basically uh, homage to his own stories. Um, Have you had fun with playing around with the actual medium of comics itself? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that um, is Robbie's own creative genius coming through. Because I think that with Doctor Who, more than like, you know, for example, like mainstream superhero comics, you're in a unique position to play around with space and time Mm -hmm. um, in a way that you can't with, you know, when you think it's mostly action or mostly this. Uh, and so I think that whenever writers come to the property, they are like, oh, you know what? You can really play around with this. There's been some, I don't know if you've read any of the 11th Doctor's run, but um, like Simon Fraser and all the writers, they've had like, they've done some amazing things where I sort of read through it and I'm like, oh, bloody hell, I wish I thought of doing that. Even just like little small um, ways of using just the medium. Like we did one, it was only a small thing, but we, we had to do a TARDIS materializing in a building um, mm. but like whilst they're inside the TARDIS to show it and that was really fun like trying to figure out how to draw that and stuff and bring that across and I think you can be really playful with it which is great it, it's it's really gets your creativity going and that's a nice I mean that's why the show has gone on for 50 years is because it's sort of an unending well of inspiration and that's what the comics are as well like you can you can make this comics for forever and never tell the same story twice so uh, you have worked with some wonderful original companions for the Doctor uh, in the series with the punk guitarist Hattie and then uh, Val and Sonny, the comic book writer and illustrator in the most recent issues. Uh, which has been your favorite original companion to work on and bring to life? I say I did really like Hattie. She was, um, her look was designed by Mariano, one of the other artists, and he just gave us such like a cool cool punky sci-fi look that I thought that was great plus I really like giving people tattoos if you couldn't tell (laughs) from my punk doctor thing um she was really fun to draw although people drawing bald people is always really difficult (laughs) because you can cover up so many sins with hair and (laughs) when people are bald that you have to just get their head the right shape or else you're screwed but um (laughs) technicalities aside yeah uh Hattie was really good I did like drawing Val and Sunny as well actually but um with Sonny, he initially had a hipster moustache. <laughs> Robbie never sends art notes. And on that first issue, he was like, 
get rid of the mustache. So I don't know if he's got like Aww. a history of hating people with mustaches or something. But yeah, that made me laugh. That little just like get rid of the mustache. <laughs> Morrison's got an anti-mustache bias. He does. You read it here. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> So one of the things uh, I remember following along was when they announced that Pearl Mackey was going to play the next companion. You, as well as everyone else on the internet, was freaking out a little bit because the companion you had designed um, for issue 2.5, Natalie, looked uh, very strikingly like Pearl does. And you mentioned uh, in the conversation that Robbie Morrison hadn't given you any particular notes about how Natalie should look. I was curious about the process of creating the look for a new character or new companion for the Doctor in the comics and how you do that and as well how you bring in some diversity to that because it you know if you've been given the character Natalie and you've got wide range to do whatever you want with it uh, and you seem to have brought in uh, a little bit of diversity into creating that character. So I was wondering what your process was and how you think about creating those characters. I mean, Natalie was a was an interesting one because I think I'd literally just read an article written by uh, a woman who was saying that she she felt that she was a black lady and she felt that there wasn't enough examples in media of uh, women of color who are nerdy because they tend to, you know, you see them, but because we're so lacking in diversity that whenever you see those women in media, they have to be like, Oh, strong, powerful, you don't get to see politicians and stuff. You don't get to see someone be just like a little nerd who's also a a woman of color. So I was like, okay, well, we'll go in that direction and chose that. And then what I normally do is spend way too many hours browsing clothing, like online clothing shops, (laughs) like Topshop and stuff, and like choosing the outfit. I I spend way too long doing that. So I did that with her as well, Um, which was, uh, that's always really fun as well. Like, especially because she was like a teenager. So it's, she dresses a bit like, more youthful than I do I'm not like a million years old but you know what I mean so that yeah. was really good and uh yeah when that um when the news came out about Pearl I was a bit like oh you never know what uh people are going to be like and I was like oh are we gonna have to change it like Natalie in the comics because people will be like oh you just copied the new companion or she looks too similar or something like this so I sent an email to my editor and I was like do we have to change it now because she just kind of looks like Bill and stuff and he was like no, you know, I think we can be pretty safe in the knowledge that there's probably more than one black girl in London that would want to travel with the doctor. And I was like, oh, thank God, you know, because <laughs> if yeah. we had put like a brunette girl in the, like a brunette, uh, Cauca- well, white girl in the comics, and then, um, you know, and then Clara had been announced, we wouldn't have bat an eyelid, you know. So I think that that was, it was a nice moment of sort of like, phew, you know, <laughs> the, yes. the good guys running uh, Titan, really, because they're just like, yeah, it's fine. Why are you stressing over it? So that was good. And uh, yeah, and I love drawing her expressions because uh, I sort of based her a little bit, her appearance on Will Smith's daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I thought she's got such like a, like a cute little punky look to her and stuff. So yeah, so th- it's kind of like that kind of process when you're coming up with a character. It was based on reading that article and then choosing the clothes from like online stuff and then yeah kind of choosing like a little bit of a personality to go with her face and yeah so speaking of Pearl Mackey I noticed that you've been doing a little bit of art with Bill on uh, your Twitter and that Pearl Mackey has actually seen and loved your artwork Uh, do you think that you'll be doing any work with Bill in the future 
I'm taking a small break from Doctor Who just for now to work on sex criminals, <laughs> which if any <laughs> listeners are into Doctor Who and aren't into comics, that sounds like a dodgy comic, but I swear it's <laughs> this is the same conversation I've had to have with my parents. Like, I know it sounds dodgy, but I swear it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so I haven't actually drawn Bill in a p- professional capacity yet, but I, oh God, oh, her outfits look so great. Like, I love what they're doing with her look in the show, and I think Pearl's going to be amazing. And I can't wait to draw her because she's got such an amazing face as well. And she tweeted me and she was like, I really like your artwork. I was like, it, I always get a bit panicked when I remember people actually look at the stuff I do. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there any doctor? that you would like to work on uh, outside of Peter Capaldi's Doctor in the comics? Uh, Well, I've done a little bit for the 9th, the 10th. I've only ever had to draw the 11th Doctor once for one pinup image. And he's quite fun to draw because his face is an enigma. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because he's sort of smooth and featureless because he's baby Matt Smith. And then also... He's very delicate eyebrows, and yeah, he's really interesting to draw. So, wouldn't mind doing more of the eleventh. Although he's difficult because he hasn't got eyebrows, and I think my artwork is very eyebrow focused. Uh, <laughs> um, you have to sort of always have him with his head tilted down. So, it, I'm getting too technical about it, but like it uses like the ridge of his eye socket as a pseudo eyebrow and stuff. <laughs> um, but that's that's fun to play with. Plus, like anytime you've got to depict a Doctor whose personality is quite different from the one you're used to is really cool so like I loved seeing Chris Jones's work on the third doctor because you could tell he knows Pertwee like so well and um, he had like all the mannerisms down and it was that cool thing of there's like a spark that goes off in your brain when you see someone capture an expression that you know and um, that you recognize from someone um which is something I I try to do occasionally but uh yeah it's it's amazing when you read moments like that in comics uh, you mentioned earlier you're taking a break um, from Doctor Who comics for a while uh, and doing some work with sex criminals. So that sounds very different from what you're working on right now. Yeah, it was really funny because like you have that moment where you're like emailing the people asking you to do it going, you, you know I'm the Doctor Who guy, right? Like, <laughs> this isn't really my area of expertise. <laughs> But it's been amazing. It's been such fun. And um, it's there's been a few times when I've wanted to play with things with the... Uh, the oh, I better finish this sentence quickly. Uh, <laughs> like, layout-wise. On right. the pages, like, with the lips. And I've had to send them examples where I'm, like, going, OK, so this sort of nude scene is a bit like when I drew the doctor doing this. <laughs> I'm like... No, I mean, like, the layout and stuff, so that's been really fun. Um, Yeah, I'm having such a blast doing it, I have to say. And I hope, like, because the problem is it's such a well-known... I think a lot more people... It's not a far... It's not a stretch to suggest that maybe more people have read Sex Criminals than have read the Doctor Who comics. And Mm so I'm I'm so aware that there's more of a fan base there to, like, disappoint, because I think I've always been incredibly lucky because working on Doctor Who and Star Trek and even Planet of the Apes with its fandom as well, I've only had like the best experience with fans. I've never had a negative one. Everyone's been so lovely and so sweet. And so whenever you branch out into unknown territory, it's always a bit uh, scary, but I hope it'll work out fine. (laughs) Next week on This Week in Time Travel... 
Kim and Sage from the Head Over Feels blog and Twitter site and Phenomenon will be here to talk about their experiences as fans and as ubiquitous con presences. They are our favorite people. And we also are going to have a tale of two 12th Doctors, which I'm sure is going to be an entirely reasonable and calm conversation. We're going to talk about who we like better, Season 8 or Season 9 Capaldi. That's next week in This Week in Time Travel. Next up on This Week in Time Travel, Chip will be talking to Paul Cornell, a man who needs no introduction, but has quite the astonishing history with Doctor Who, from new adventure novels to some incredible comic books and some of our favorite TV episodes. He's written and created some of the things that we love most about Doctor Who. When Chip talked with him at Gallifrey One, his final Doctor Who comic was about to be published, and he's about to leave licensed work forever, which leaves all of us going, we don't want him to go. Paul, our uh, mutual friends at the Verity Podcast are uh, this year doing a series that they call their Year of Loves and Lasts, and I thought that that was kind of appropriate because... uh, you're involved in your involvement with Doctor Who is very much a loves and lasts kind of thing right now. Um, a few weeks ago, your last issue of the third Doctor miniseries for Titan came out, and that is as what you intend to be your final statement on Doctor Who in fiction. Yes, I mean, as a kind of side effect, in that um, I've announced to the world that I'm only going to be um, writing my own characters from now on with a couple of little caveats i was aware that thus no more doctor who but that's not the main thrust of it but knowing that uh, i was able to um give uh the third doctor a speech about uh, a moment of charm as terence dix always calls them about um you know uh, the necessity of moving forward with life which is also textually appropriate for him finally getting the will to leave earth even though he's been able to for a while and um, so I was really, really pleased to be able to to sign off on that note. You are leaving licensed work or uh, non-creator-owned work. Um, the last thing that you're doing right now is Vampirella. Yes. Um, so what made you decide to make this change? Um, just because um, I turned 50 this year, and I feel I've got, if I'm very lucky, 25 years or so more creative life left. Um, you know, I mean, you know, life as, as somebody whose whose products will be bought, as it were, and um, you know, I I just want to make the most of it and cut off my safety net and make sure that I've got a a pile of original work at the end. Getting rid of the safety net means that basically I can't fall back on characters that you know I I kind of. It's hard to say this without sounding egotistical, but I think I could probably always find work within certain licensed properties, and denying that to myself means that I have to go out there and and find places to take my original work. If you're constantly lifting weights with the same amount of weight on the stack, you're not getting stronger. Also, me getting out of the way lets other newer creators in, you know, at the other end. I think that's very important too. On your blog over the years, you've always been very open about a, a, a bit of a conflicted rela- relationship with Doctor oh, Who. Oh, yeah. The um, thing you love, and yet every time you announced a, 
I've got a new project coming up. You'd say something on Twitter and you get 500 tweets. Is it about Doctor Who? Yes, absolutely. And this is the other thing that that will finish this off, hopefully. <laughs> Although I got a couple of tweets having announced this. People saying, well, until you go back on Doctor Who, of course. And I'm kind of like, no. <laughs> I mean, the universe tested me in that an hour after I made this announcement, uh, Titan got the rights to Dan Dare and tweeted about it. And I'm kind of like, oh, there we go. <laughs> because I was aware that all sorts of licenses are going to drift across my viewpoint that I would dearly love to do. And um, but that's what I've that's what I've I know I think I, I, I want to be able to say I really love Doctor Who and I really love a lot of these licensed properties. And the temptation to actually give in and pursue them is is huge. And I hope that reassures people that it's not because of any lack of love on my part. You have been a Doctor Who fan for pretty much your whole life. Well, actually, only since I was nine. Okay, um, which which feels like a, a feels like a whole life to well, me. Forty but. years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you've you've said before that Doctor Who sort of a love of Doctor Who sort of made you uh, want to be a writer. Oh, absolutely. How do you feel about playing with someone else's toys as sort of a stepping stone to creativity? Well, uh, yes, hugely. I mean, it's the blank piece of paper is the toughest thing of all. And having some limitations placed on you by existing characters or something like that is really helpful. Not only that, to create original work, you have to be in conversation with with literature or with the genre you're working in. And uh, to write in an established world is to be in conversation where the other side of the conversation is really interesting and packed with information so that you already have a little bit of a head start. Um, you also, it's also very easy to work out how good you are when you're comparing yourself to other works with exactly the same characters. And uh, these are all, all helpful things. I mean, the thing is, it doesn't have to be a stepping stone to anything else. There are lots of good writers who've remained within established worlds all their lives and are no less brilliant, you know, as a result. Do you feel your cha- your relationship with Doctor Who changing by your decision to not do license work anymore? Yes. I mean, that is to say I've... I've been able to unashamedly enjoy it a lot more. As I get older, I'm allowing myself my pleasures without feeling guilty about them. But uh, having closed the door, it means that I'm not fretting all the time about, oh, I ache a little bit when I see the TV show in production and I'm not on it. Or, uh, you know, if there's a really good artist uh, drawing this, this Doctor Who book and I wish I could work with them... And should I really try hard to do that? And no, it it means that now I can I can just unashamedly enjoy it without without it hurting. What would you say was your creative highlight? The piece of work that made you feel most fully Paul Cornell in the Doctor Who world? Okay, the original Human Nature is pretty dear to me, but. Um, Right now, it's one of the audios. It's um, Circular Time. Even though it's a co-write, one of the epi- <laughs> specifically one half-hour episode of that, the one with um, Peter Davison and Nissa, uh, there's a lot of cricket in it. I think I really got that kind of right. I think my Titan comics are, are pretty good too. Apart from that, there's a lot of trying and failing and some decadent coasting. No future is decadent coasting. Happy Endings is only a book 
in the sense that it makes sense if you've read every new adventure beforehand. I really hate the thought of picking people picking up happy endings, not having any context for it, and they would think I was an awful writer. Anybody picking up No Future will think I'm an awful writer. And of course, you created a legacy for yourself in the property with Bernice Summerfield, um, mm-hmm. and you're perfectly content to let other people tell her story, or are you open to returning to her someday? I'm, I'm not only open to it, but I intend to some degree to do it, in that she's my character. This isn't another person's character. I own Bernice. And so you know, it's her 20th anniversary at Big Finish next year. And we're in talks about what we're going to do for that. But I'll certainly be close to the the character and her, and her setting and the people running that. I don't want to get reinvolved to the extent of, you know, sticking my oar in and resuming control or anything like that. Because we've all seen creators who get out of touch with their properties and then try and come back at a significant point and you know, aren't actually close enough to it to do the good work anymore. So if I do write something, it'll be very much um, a specific, useful thing. But uh, yeah, there's, absolutely. I think she's, it's amazing she's still around. Big Finish have been uh, delightful in keeping her going. And apparently, in the last two years, she sold more than she ever has. So I think the uh, there's a modern Bernice fandom which I think a lot of it is about Miles Richardson and Braxiatel, judging by what I see on Tumblr. And uh, but that, and of course about Lisa. But the fact that she's now more popular than she's ever been, it boggles the mind. <laughs> Your current project uh, just came out is the novel Chalk. Mm-hmm. Talking about, you know, not licensed, not licensed work, but very, but very personal work. You've described this as a as an extraordinarily personal novel. Can yes. you say a little bit about that? Um, it's my one-off horror novel for Tor.com pub, uh, Publishing, the same people who bring out my Witches of Lichford books. I've been working on it for over twenty years, in various different versions. Um, it, it's a, a story that took it was very hard to tell and took a long time to tell. It's um, about uh, school bullying in the nineteen eighties. A lot of the detail is very personal to me. There is a supernatural element. How much of that is real within the world of the book is left up to the reader to decide. Uh, It's just the story of me, really. It's, uh, I hope that, it's it's universal, I hope. It's uh, a book I hope will be uh, singing the blues for anybody who uh, was bullied, in that it's an exorcism of, of it. Yes, you will be taken back to it, I hope, but at the same time, led through it and healed. I mean, that's my aim. And um, it is also not that awful siren song of a book that says, you were bullied and thus, being a victim, you can do whatever you want to your tormentors and you are a hero for your suffering. That's not where it goes. It's about cycles of abuse. And... um, I like to think it's real in that respect. Uh, certainly, if I do one important or positive thing all the time, it's to try and make sure that I don't make people suffer because of what was done to me, and specifically my son. Those who stop a cycle of abuse 
are doing the most incredible important work and so far it, it's gone fine in that respect but it's something an alcoholic will say you don't get a prize for not drinking that day what what happens in the book um is it's it's about a single big trauma and everything that that unfolds from that yeah if you know the 1980s also uh, it's about a very a culture that's actually horribly reminiscent of right now actually um uh, a culture a culture of um austerity and institutionalized bullying also there's a lot about um, pop music and the power of that as a release and the magic of that literally there is a there's the use of of chart music as magic also for doctor who fans our hero uh, is a doctor who fan and visits the doctor who exhibition at longleat house during the course of the book <laughs> well played yeah okay so so more more than a hint of autobiography there more than a hint but it's a fully fictional world it's not it's not please come and listen to my misery <laughs> um source estate which is coming out from idw um, is the sequel to and continuation of uh, Saucer Country, which was my Vertigo comic. And uh, it's about uh, the, uh, the newly elected female president of the USA, uh, Arcadia Alvarado, uh, who, when she was governor of New Mexico, was abducted by aliens, in inverted commas, uh, has always struggled to work out what that was and what it meant, and now has the power of the office of the president to try and find out if anybody in the establishment knew anything about it or if it was an entirely staged thing or what. And um, uh, there's something at the end of issue one of the new run which kind of changes the whole comic. Uh, it's going to be a two six-issue miniseries, both drawn like the original comic by Ryan Kelly. And um, we are going to finish our story. That is to say, and I think this is something you really want to hear from anybody who is, say, the creator of the X-Files or something like that. Um, we know how it ends. Um, I intend to tie up every single knot and answer every single question. And uh, with 12 issues to do it, we absolutely are going to do that. And uh, I couldn't be more delighted to get it back and finish it. Um, but also, new readers can start here. Um, the whole story is absolutely comprehensible if you just buy issue one of the new run. Mm. And also, uh, IDW are coming out with the old run in a single collected volume the month before the new run. So I couldn't be happier. They've done a wonderful thing for me there. Uh, at this convention, you have looked lighter on your feet and happier uh, than I've seen you in a <laughs> while. I, I do believe this decision to, um, as the doctor says at the end of the fifth uh, uh, fifth issue of that last miniseries, uh, have have a have a one last fling and then go and go and be yourself. That certainly seems to have agreed with you. It really does. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Doctor Who this week. That's D R W H O this week. You can find Chip at numeral two minute time lord, and you can find myself at Whovian Feminism. And check us out on Facebook too. 
For this first episode, we'd like to thank the folks at The Incomparable Network who helped us get this thing off and running. Jason Snell runs the network and graciously invited us. Our theme music was by Christopher Breen, original music. Check out his stuff. And our podcast logo was designed by one David J. Lore. Alyssa, thanks so much for being my co-host on this adventure. Thanks, Chip. It's been a wonderful trip. We're finally out of the gate. Woo! We'll be back next week with This Week in Time Travel. It's glorious. Wow. You you, you amazing young people with technology. Bloody hell. <laughs> Chip's magic. <laughs> Before we go, can I ask one other question? Sure. Okay, what was what what was Whitney Houston's favorite type of coordination? What? What was Whitney Houston's favorite type of coordination? Oh, I hate riddles. Uh, dancing. Hand eye. <laughs> oh. That's terrible. Oh, you that should, is the you should worst. come on as much as you like. <laughs> Tom, I have missed. I have missed hearing. I have missed hearing you over these years. <laughs> okay, all good. Oh, and that, of course, is going to be our. Um, that's going to be our stinger at the end of the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank yep. you for. Oh, rock and roll, cool. <laughs> all right. Um,